Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, everyone. I'm Olga Sergeyevich, the Head of Investor Relations at Village Global. I'm pleased to introduce our guest today, Chris Lund. Chris is a CTO at one of the programs at the National Institute of Health. Prior to that, he uh, worked at Get Insured, where he headed up government solutions, working with the federal and state governments and vendor community to improve health insurance, shopping, and enrollment systems. Chris has spent about two decades working here in the Valley in both uh, private and public sector. And in today's conversation, we'll talk about technology-driven programs in the public health sector, we'll talk about the intersection of uh, public and private partnerships, and we'll talk about general technology trends impacting healthcare. Thank you, Olga. Let's start uh, with your career. You've spent time in a number of different companies, um, and um, in the last few years, you decided that this was a time in your career when you wanted to focus on impact and using your skills to um, to create solutions which would impact a large number of people and sort of create the world you want to see. So um, walk us through your career and some of your takeaways on how the technology ecosystem, technology sector changed over the last two decades and what were some of your takeaways from different companies uh, where you worked? Let me, I'm going to give you two versions of the answer. And one is one is personal and one is more about the ecosystem. Um, and personally, I think you know, many people go through a three-act structure in terms of their career. You have 15 years to figure out what it is you want to do, what you're good at, what you care about. Then you get 15 years to really invest in getting good at that and mastering what that is. And then you get 15 years at the end of your career to decide what you're going to do with that, to draw down on all the capital you've built up, the intellectual capital and the social capital, and try and do something that you really care about. And I really see myself now as being in the third act of my career and thinking about what can I do based on everything I've learned and everything I've built up over time to uh, to leave some legacy uh, of, of the time that I've spent working. And uh, for me, that really became uh, also about the moment where there's this opportunity of these converging forces that came together at the same time. So let's go talk about the ecosystem a little bit to show how those two things line up. You know, I got a chance. I started uh, pre-internet um, uh, working in software um, and hated it and, and thought about leaving the field. Um, I found it so boring. Um, and then when the web revolution happened, really, you know, 95 is it really started to become commercially viable to, to work in that space. And uh Getting a chance to be there at the beginning of that and be involved in the early companies that were inventing a lot of the concepts around the internet and how we would interact with it was incredibly exciting because you felt like you had this chance to create this sociological change. And what I saw is what was going to be a positive one of uniting people of uh, of common interest who felt like they were isolated in the past. And I think you even look at things like the LGBTQI movement that's going on now, right, in some ways is rooted in this the fact that these communities were able to form um, as the internet really started to come on. Um, and there's a negative, a downside that we've seen as well, right? We've seen all the other sort of negative communities that managed to come together around this. And I think we're still understanding collectively how to build a society that fully uses the internet. But to be there when that happened was really exciting for Web 1.0. And then in 2001, right? The whole thing comes crashing down. And 2002 is a terrible time to be in Silicon Valley. And I'm one of these people that sort of really believes in that, that 
idea of Silicon Valley that goes back to like Stuart Brand and the Whole Earth Catalog and these guys, right, of this, this crucible for social experiment and sort of imagining what the future of humanity might be like um, and how you could build a better society and sort of shed a lot of the orthodoxy in the, of the past. Um, and there were a lot of dreamers in the Valley when Web 1.0 hit, um, who then got to be a part of that. And I and then it all came down, and then we started to build it all up again. But I feel like the second round, like it was more venal, like it didn't have quite as many dreamers. More people just like well, there's a lot of money in this too, and they sort of came into the valley as well. And it, I felt lost a little bit of its charm, but um, it was exciting to be a part then of social networking, right? Which was another big revolution that that came through, and I got to participate in that one as well, and have some patents from that time when I was involved early on, and saw this opportunity to bring more humanity in terms of the interaction and the buildup of digital identity. Like, what does it mean to have an identity outside of your physical presence, but have something out there in the cloud? And so, when 2016 comes along, you saw for the first time this opportunity for the convergence of genomics and more broadly of all of the new instrumentation that we had to be able to understand the function of the body and what human health was and of cloud computing and of machine learning in a way that meant that we were going to have this incredible way to deal with understanding human health as an information exercise, not as a wet lab exercise, right? But just to be able to deal with it as a digital exercise of understanding what we could do in terms of medicine and improving human health, which for me is the All of Us Research Program, which is I'm the CTO for this program. Um, and uh, the program's been going for uh, eight years uh, and has been really successful. It's been very exciting to be there at this moment where this is all converging. And I think we're having a whole new approach to how we do research and a chance for the NIH to really come into this digital age and really own that in a big way. So we'll we'll go come back to medicine and and NIH, but um, one of your first uh, sort of earlier part of the career roles was at Friendster, and you mentioned social media and first wave of the internet. Um, so, what were some of your thoughts when you know all of the blockchain and crypto Web three craze started? At, because a lot of the narrative around rebuilding was sort of based on a lot of the similar dreams and aspirations of the first wave. And so, as you were thinking this, as you were seeing this new wave of builders talking about it, like what were some of your reflections, and um, and how come you didn't get attempted to join that new revolution? I think yeah, there was a really good uh, recently. Um, Andreessen Horvitz, right, had published a popular article about techno optimism. This came out in, like October or something. Um, and uh, I, parts of it, I'm absolutely cheering on, right? And I'm in that camp. And there are parts of it where I'm very misaligned, sort of politically, with their conception of the way the world works. And right, I'm someone that believes in the power of the public side of things, like of actually investing public money to build up the baseline of, of research and things in a way that's hard to do in a fully market-based economy. I think that you need that collective action sometimes to help create the opportunities. And Silicon Valley is largely a story of public-private partnership um, as well in the past. Um, and, uh, and we can get more later. It'd be interesting to talk about ARPA-H and some of the other new work that's going on in this space. But I think that there was this idea that, you know, oh, like the thing that makes so much of the economy, you know, uh, inefficient and, and, and doesn't deliver full value to people is that there are banks in the middle of it, right? If we can get banks out of the way, like things will be, get better. And that I partly have then been through a couple of technical revolutions too. You recognize that these revolutions empower both the better angels and the demons of human nature, um, and that a lot of this was going to be criminal, and that actually removing people from the middle of this, I didn't think was necessarily a good idea or going to produce better outcomes. Um, it's it's really interesting when you look at 
the big technology changes that have happened like in the last 20 years that have had a positive impact on our lives and how sketchy some of them are at some level in terms of their relationship around regulation and things. So you look at Airbnb or you look at Uber um, and the, I certainly for one benefit from the fact that you had this bad system of this monopolization of taxi medallions that prevented people from having like a reliable way to sort of get a private car and what an improvement Uber was to do that. That how they did that, right, was sort of really treading on the toes of, of that. And maybe you can talk about regulatory caps or other problems that contribute to that. But on the whole, for me, a lot of the Web3 stuff wasn't grounded, I felt, in a realistic understanding of human nature. And I felt like that you weren't going to get a good outcome out of a lot of those things. And that's part of why I wasn't that interested really in being involved in them, because they seemed so rooted in this sort of objectivist idea that like, if everyone's selfish, it'll all work out for everybody. Um, Because I don't really believe that that's true. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you were talking about, you know, taking banks out of the equation and sort of financial intermediaries more uh, more generally, and you use this framework of angels and demons, um, I was afraid with like where that was going to go. I spent five years of my career at Morgan Stanley. Um, and so, you know, still strongly believe in the, in the role that financial intermediaries play in, in all of these um, you know, technological revolution and uh, and the importance that venture capital industry specifically played in the success of the United States um, innovation economy. But uh, let's let's go back to the topic of public-private partnerships and sort of longer-term history and, you know, which ones of these in the context of the United States you think are the most successful ones, um, which, which ones perhaps are the most meaningful to the work you're doing today. And then let's segue into NIH. Yeah, and I think uh, which that's I think a really great place to start. That the NIH is the largest funder of medical research in the world, and that if you go to a hospital and get treated now, like it's likely that the science that underlies that treatment came from NIH investments, right? I think it's been a big success for us as a country. It's helped drive the economy around medical innovation for a long time. Um, and I think uh, you know another example that's positive that people bring up is is DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which is largely you know, uh, helped create the internet and GPS. Um, and I think these were things that enabled, again, so many other improvements. I mean, you can't, you don't have Lyft and Uber if you don't have GPS, like that's what really enabled all of that. Um, and, uh, uh, and there's a recognition though, too, that the NIH has gotten good at a particular kind of investment. And there's other kinds of investments that maybe it's not as good at, and that maybe they need another vehicle to do that. And so ARPA-H, the uh, was this opportunity to create an agency that would um, have funding to apply towards um, innovation, but to apply towards innovation too that was um, long shot, right, or high beta innovation and and stuff that like it was hard even for these people in some cases maybe to get money just from VCs because VCs are like you know I don't I don't like the odds on this necessarily, but that it was a way for them to be able to spur innovation that would have a broader impact and to try and do so in a way that didn't have all of the buildup of bureaucracy around actually getting the funding. Um, something that operated closer to DARPA where it was a much quicker model for people to be able to come in with a good idea and get an investment without all of that. I, you know, and I think about, um, I had, I took an investment back in like 2005 um, or 2008. And uh, there was another group that had taken an investment right before me that 
got and they were they were starting at that time they're doing more models about smaller investments right so this is back sort of like why combinator and techstars and others are really starting to get traction showing that you could come in earlier with these seed investments and spread a little more broadly and then reinvest in the things that were doing well and so there was a vc that was trying out like a half million uh dollar investment like a five hundred thousand dollar investment and then like closing the deal with the entrepreneur and you had the lawyers on the side spent like a hundred thousand dollars on legal fees, getting the deal closed, right? You at least spent 20% of the deal and sort of showed like, well, this doesn't work, right? That like we can't spend, we're going to lose all the money that we would have been investing just in getting the deal done. We need a more streamlined way to get the deals done. And so I think, and so some people at that time started to do more like it's, we're not writing up something specific. It's a template, right? And you fill in and like, and you just, it's take it or leave. It was kind of the model that they had to start to do. Um, and so likewise, I think you look at ARPA-H and you go, what does it take to get investment here? And it's got to be something that can be small enough of an overhead, right? That the kind of people who are going to do that innovation can do it. Because one of the other problems you see is like, as you go to do government investment into some company and the cost of putting a proposal together, is huge, right? Because you're asked to do all these things and prove that you can do it, improve all the things you can do around security and everything else. And it gets so burdensome, like a small company just really can't take that on. Um, I think there's also the problem on the other end for the government looking at like making a investment, something that they want to last 10 years as a piece of serious infrastructure, investing in a company with, you know, a year or two of experience. It's just, it's hard for them to get comfortable with that idea. Um, and so it's interesting to see how the vehicles that we used for public investment like have changed over time. And I think you've seen at the NIH, you had um, grants, which is basically throw money over the wall and good luck and just tell us how it works out. Cooperative agreements where like, well, we're going to trust you to help put the scope together of this because you're the expert in this as well. And we're going to work back and forth on this. Um, and then um, contracts where it's like, we're going to tell you exactly what we want. And you have to build to that specification. And they started to create other transactional authority OTAs. And they've started to use that as a way. And it's a whole new model of how you interact with the partners that sort of gives you more control than you'd have in a cooperative agreement, um, but doesn't have the specificity that you would have in a contract. I think that's opening up new venues for these kind of public investments. Yep. And so let's talk about NIH and specifically the program that you are involved in right now. So what are some of the projects you're working on? What are some of the challenges you're solving, outcomes, and um, and what's been the most exciting part of this journey in the last couple of years for you? Thank you. And I'll give you the quick like one minute summary of what all of us is doing. Um, and so all of us is going to a million people living in the US um, and then asking them to uh, donate a bio sample to uh, fill out some surveys about their health and their health history and their health habits um, to um, agree to donate their electronic health records to the program. Um, and uh, take some physical measures, um, and then taking all that information about people's experienced health um, and do a whole genome sequence um, from their bio sample, uh, and then make that available to researchers after it's been de-identified to protect the privacy of the people that are doing it, so that you have this huge repository of information about what people's actual experienced health is and relative to what their genetics are. Um, and I think, and since the program started, there was the idea of doing that with genetics, but we realized now we have this capacity to do a lot of other interesting measurements of what your functional health is in terms of things like proteomics and metabolomics. So we're starting to look at making those investments in time as well. Um, and while doing this, we want to address the fact that um, there are many communities in the US that have never really gotten a chance to participate in research before. And that part of the reason you get worse outcomes sometimes in some communities are is because they've never been 
participating in like, uh, you know, drug safety checks and things like that. And so if there's uh, specific genes that exist in those populations that may give them worse outcomes from drugs, we don't discover that unless they're participating. And so we're reaching out to communities that are underrepresented in biomedical research for any reason. So that includes sexual and gender minority communities, that includes um, handy uh, or, or disabled communities, um, people of low income, low educational attainment, rural populations, and specifically looking at making sure at least half of the people we bring in are people from races or ethnicities that have been underrepresented in research, Hispanic, African-American, Native American, et cetera. Um, and that outreach effort has taken a tremendous amount of work on building trust with those communities because there's the history isn't necessarily great in terms of the relationship between the medical community um, and, and uh, underrepresented communities. Um, and so we started collecting back in uh, 2017 people's information. And then for the first time in 2020, made that available to researchers. Um, and we now have over 8,000 researchers on this platform. Um, we have uh, uh, over 100 papers that have been published um, and many more in the pipeline, a lot of stuff coming and important discoveries um, starting to come out of this as well. Um, and so we're excited that like it took a while to build up that whole pipeline, right? But now we see a lot of science coming at the other end and science that's servicing communities of people that have been poorly serviced in the past. Um, and uh, we are excited about the fact that not only is this all going, right? But now we're starting to layer more things on there, right? We've been adding more um, measurements in there. We're starting, we're working on adding in um, environmental health impacts. We've been collecting social determinants of health as part of this as well. So I think really get a much more complete picture of all the factors that contribute into the health that we have with the goal of driving precision medicine, that ultimately we don't treat a population, we treat an individual. And then we want to understand for that individual, what are your genetics? What is your background? What's your family history? What's the place that you're living? How does all that contribute into making sure I'm delivering the, the medicine or the treatment or the diagnostic that's really going to service you as an individual? Yep. So now would be a great time to brag. Give us some of the specific examples um, where you were able to bring the data from some of these populations that maybe haven't been you know, included in research before. And now you've had a a lot of research that has been published with some of the outcomes. Are there any specific examples of how better understanding of some of these groups might lead to better health outcomes as a result of what you've learned? Yeah, and I want to give an example. There's a paper that uh, just came out recently, um, and it is about the APOL1 gene. Um, and this is a gene associated with the structure, like inside your kidneys, how your kidneys are built. It was, uh, and we had a paper that was uh, published um, in the Journal of Nephrology. Um, and uh, this, so this is about how your kidneys function. And for African-American communities, they have a disproportionate amount of kidney disease. Um, and some of that is due to uh, other factors, social determinants of health and others. Um, but some of that is genetic and that there are some specific alleles of that APOL1 gene in that community that contribute to um, ultimately to chronic kidney disease and, and ultimately to kidney failure. Um, and so you can see also there's you know, a disproportionate use of dialysis in the African-American community, community as well. What they found was though, that, that one of these bad versions of this gene, now you have, you have two copies of every gene in your body, you one from your mom and one from your dad, right? And so you get a lot of difference sometimes depending on like whether those are the same gene or different genes and what those different genes are. But what they found is that there are genes that appear to offer a protective element. So if you have a copy of the bad one that would cause the disease, if you have 
a protective one in that other slot, it can actually prevent the disease from happening. And so what this shows is there may be a way if we can understand like what's the protein that's being produced by that protective version, there may be a medicine that we could give to people that would override the bad gene that they have in their bodies. Um, and so that we may be able to early intervene and prevent the progression or development of kidney disease for this community. So here's a great example of like, hey, it's new science, something we hadn't discovered before. It has direct application that we can look at and that's starting to be explored um, and that uh, it's servicing a community that otherwise had not been well serviced in this regard, right? That there weren't enough African-Americans being sequenced to even know that that was the case. Um, and this was not, and I to say too, it's not just us. This is sort of also our um, uh, our inspiration in some ways is the UK Biobank. Um, and so this is another great international program that's gone out and sequenced data for a lot of people um, and uh, that they've also been using data from there. And you'll see that we often show up together. People will use data from both data sets um, mm -hmm. together. And I think that's one of the things we feel really good about bringing to it, though, is that we're bringing so much more diversity than they are. Um, and it really then makes sure that the science that's being discovered with use of the UK Biobank is going to apply to the full diversity of the U.S. population. Yep. And I would imagine it wasn't easy to gain trust of the people whose information you used. And, um, you know, so tell us tell us more about what were some of the learnings and takeaways in in approaching some of the folks in these communities and um, and some of the specific issues maybe that they were worried about and how how you were able to address to bring them um, on board with the program. Yeah. Um, you know, if you talk to um, if an African-American community, like you you visit, you know, a, a church and you tell them, hey, we'd love to engage with you in this program. Like Henrietta Lacks is in the room with you at some level. Um, the Tuskegee syphilis studies in the room with you, like everyone there knows these stories. They know about things that have been done bad in the past and they have that some of that mistrust. And I think that's some of where a lot of our approach has been. One, to make sure that the diversity of the populations we're seeking are reflected in the people running the program um, and the and the groups that we're um, hiring to go out and help us to do this recruitment um, and to then go to um, engagement groups um, that are specifically interested in the health of their communities as intermediaries of people who already have some trust in those communities. Um, and uh, and so and, and and going to where those communities are and places that are sort of central to to those communities. And I think and I brought up the example of a church is not by accident. Right. We've engaged with a number of um, African-American church organizations um, that are interested in health and science and trying to help promote that broadly in the African-American community. Um, we work with the National Hispanic Alliance. We work with 50 Forward. There are a lot of big engagement groups we work with who help us to sort of bridge um, that to help. Uh, communicate, to help educate and sort of show people like what's the potential impact? What do we get by really engaging in these programs um, and really show that return of value back to the communities and even along the way to the people participating in the study. And so we're doing something that studies generally have not done in the past um, that we're sequencing your genome and there are a defined and recognized set of genetic variations that you may have that make it very likely that you're going to have a significant health problem and that there are ways for that to be addressed. Um, and so that we are returning that information back to the people participating in the program. Um, that's been hard, that's been expensive. I think we're sort of breaking ground on a lot of this, but we felt it was important and respectful to say like, hey, if we found something that really is relevant for you. We feel like we're obligated um, to return this information to you for the sake of your health. So we specifically hired um, a company to be our genomic counseling center. And so if we find something, first we go and do 
validation at a clinical level to make sure we've really had that finding. And then we've asked ahead of time people like, if we find something, do you want to know? And a lot of people don't want to know. But for the people who do, then to offer them, hey, you know, we can give you a, a, a timed uh, uh, session with a genetic counselor, and they can sort of walk you through what this means and what your options might be. So not to sidetrack our conversation, but one of the things that I've often thought about is that um, it is super important for us right now as a society to figure out a functioning market for pricing of the personal data. And um, and this is really the only way to mitigate rising income inequality, right? All of us produce data. And um, a lot of the regulatory efforts, right, with the California Privacy Act and GDPR, so far has just created sort of more friction in how people use, you know, websites, etc. But I don't necessarily think they are accomplishing what the intent was. And, you know, maybe this is like a very sort of, a you know, economist oriented view of the world. But I think if you assign a price tag, if people start understanding what is the value of the data they are disclosing in any interaction interaction on Internet, then, um this will lead to the change in business models of a lot of these types of, of a lot of the companies uh, in that sector and help consumers in multiple ways. And so given that you've sort of thought through some of these things, right? Like you mentioned value exchange and um, like what, what are your thoughts on the importance of quantifying and assigning price to personal data and sort of how, how hard or easy it could be, at least in some contexts, to create a functioning pricing market for it? Yeah, and this is to go back to that um, uh, Andreessen Horvitz uh, article earlier. Um, that I feel like there's a there's a danger in using money as the only way that you measure the value of things. Um, and, uh, and it could just be like if you could, and, and that's sort of that belief, like you know, oh, if we just it's, if it's all free markets, like every problem will solve itself because the thing that makes the most money will always win. Um, I don't think that's necessarily what you want any more than like running your life by going like, what makes me feel good in the moment is what I should be doing at any time. I see a cake, I eat it. I feel happy, right? Like that we, that we deny ourselves things that we sort of deny ourselves happiness, recognizing that there's long-term happiness investments that you need to make. It's, it's the, you know, integration over time um, of all of that sort of happiness or money, maybe that really matters and not always doing things in an instantaneous way. And so, the challenge, and I remember this even coming up in the social networking days. So early on in social networking, there were a lot of people who felt like, hey, like I'm, you're using my data and and you're making money off of that with the advertisers. And like, you should be passing that value back to me. Um, and the problem is, is that it's uh, one of the problems is that it's so uneven, right? I'm like, okay, great. Like at the end of the year, here's your $5.70, right? At an individual level, it doesn't actually work. As a, as a model, you're not really motivated to get $5.70. If I've got a billion consumers and I've got all their data and I get fired, so like then it's great for me as a business. Um, but it doesn't work. An individual only works at scale, really. And I think the health data has some similar problems. Like the individual value of any person, individual person's data isn't necessarily that much. And that it's really uneven, right? There's going to be one person whose value is really, data is really valuable. Um, and a bunch of other people, right? data isn't really going to be valuable. And you don't know who that is ahead of time. Um, and so you'd have to figure out that in your model as well. But to go back to the original point about I don't necessarily want to use money to measure everything. It's the idea that there are exchange of other, there's other exchanges of value that are taking place of that. Like 
that I'm going to take responsibility for returning information to you about your health, right? That maybe make more sense. It's like, I'm sharing information with you. You will share the information back with me. Like that's, that's a huge part of the value for me. If I'm ultimately a participant in a genetic study and you give me access to my genome and that my genome in turn can be used to help drive better health comes out, the health comes from out health outcomes for me, that may be a good exchange. And it doesn't have to be something that specifically puts a dollar amount on it. And I think about uh, news like Dan Ariely or somebody, one of the social scientists who made the point, like if you went over to a friend's house and they made a really nice dinner for you, but that was really great. And you put a hundred dollars on the table, like they would be insulted. The idea is like, we've had an exchange here that isn't ultimately translatable into money in some ways. Like I'm not being sold here, that there's other social value exchanges that we do as part of our society that we can build into these kind of interactions um, and that deal with the economic piece of it external to that. Yep. So that's that's an interesting insight. So let's go back to your current project. So what what's what's coming up next for you? What are some of the things you are focused on today? Yeah. I, I and I think this is where if you look at the NIH, as I mentioned in the beginning, is in this transition process, right? That we are as an organization learning how to do better at using technology in what we do um, and to build the infrastructure and the shared infrastructure. Cause there's the danger. It's very easy to get siloed in a lot of the work that we do, just partly because of how we're organized and funded. Um, and there are people working then to make sure, like, no, let's build a common uh, data layer, for example, and make it easier for us. If I have a person that I am studying, um, and they're part of a clinical trial or they're part of a cohort program like all of us, or they're just a patient at the NIH, like it should be really easy for me of like, bring me all the data about this person I can get. Give me the care records from all of the different providers that have provided care for them in the past. Bring me information about um, their uh, environmental exposures um, from, from the databases we have about that. Um, and, and we're sort of starting to build greater data interoperability systems in here so that it's easier to collect information about people so that you have a whole picture um, of everything that could be impacting um, their health. And I think also that includes weighing in. And I you know, recently was speaking to um, the new director. We have a new director of the NIH, um, Monica Bertinoli, um, and it was just recently confirmed. And, uh, and she's making a real point of the fact that um, the way that we encode information, the way that we pass information like is, is lossy um, and that there's sort of things that were there when the patient doctor interaction was originally happening that don't show up later downstream in the places where we're looking for information about the person's health. And so capturing that provenance of data, capturing more data in the initial encounter, places where AI is going to be an important part of that, right? Because now we can start to be, I don't have to go listen and then go code what I heard. Rather than just, I can capture the complete conversation and everything that was in it, and then we can extract the codes from that, but keep the record of like, well, here's everything that was said. And the person mentioned some strange, um, uh, you know, skin presentation of a disease they were having. Maybe there was no obvious code for it and it didn't get captured. Now that sort of thing can start to be captured and passed down over time. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting work going on and opportunity to build this data plane, right? To build a place where data can really move around. And I think to the point you were making, to try and address the issues of ownership and access as we do that and really have those things attached to the data and travel with it um, so that people can say like, hey, there's uses of my data that I don't want to have happen and that you can express that. And that can be something that can travel along with the data. 
Yep. And so you've now spent a number of years uh, working um, on the government side of the healthcare sector. And um, obviously, these programs are funded by, by the government. And very often, you know, there, there could be some of the changes that we hear about on the news, you know, dependent on who is in, you know, in office and what are some of the decisions they're making. And for most of us, these things don't mean much, right? They don't impact our day to day. Like we know, you you know, there's some delay in some budget or, you know, there's this like new administration that maybe is cutting back everything government related or something like that. So from your time in government, what were some of the significant things that maybe, you know, we didn't quite appreciate how it impacted the work that some of these agencies were doing? Um, and, you know, particularly in ways which maybe would be surprising to most of the public. Um, you know, certainly when I think about the High Tech Act, um, which is not one people are necessarily going to have heard of necessarily, but really started to lay the foundation for the collection of electronic health records. Um, that uh, you know, one of the things I found um, sort of frustrating working in the medical space is that the institution of healthcare is so conservative, right, that they are the last people to adopt anything. There are hospitals that are still using beepers right now, right? Many hospitals are still using beepers and fax machines. Um, and so uh, it you really, in some cases, you need to create a very strong incentive, I think, for hospitals like stop putting it on paper, right? Like actually get this into a computer so that we can move it around. Um, and what a complete change that's been. If you go back to 2008, when that passed, the number of hospitals that were still on paper was legion. It was more than it was the majority of hospitals were still on paper at that time. And how that one followed up by work of the Affordable Care Act really got the hospitals to move on to digital technologies um, and start to get that data to be something that could move around. Um, and that was, I think, such a positive change it's created in terms of in terms of healthcare. And I think there's always there's more investments that we can make there. I think it's really interesting when you look at how you know the right incentive structures, um, because all this works and basically is the government still pays to hospitals to make the investments in all of their infrastructure for technology. And that they have then what's called the meaningful use um, uh, metric that they can use almost as a club to say, like, if you don't meet the meaningful use provisions that we've set up, we're not going to pay you. Um, and uh, and that keeps the hospitals focused on uh, the best behaviors because there's a temptation by many hospitals to hold that data. Like I have these people's data. And if I make it too easy for people's data to go, it also makes it easy for the patients to go somewhere else as well. And they don't want that necessarily, but you can come in and say like, you have to make this data available through fire through like a specific format that's used now for this. Um, and that if someone asks, like if the patient says, I would like this data to go here, like you have to do that. And if you don't, like we were going to, we're going to deny you payments. Um, you know, this is another area too. If you look at making sure that um, people are accountable for the care that they do. CMS, like which is one of the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is one of the biggest parts of the government budget, right? really drives a lot of behavior on hospitals trying to constantly improve the quality of the care that they're doing, because otherwise they don't get the Medicare or Medicaid dollars, which is a significant part in many cases of their budget. Yeah. And I don't know if you have a view on that, but are there any leaders either on the national scale or, um, you know, state level who you find deeply understand a lot of these issues and have really interesting ideas and they're passionate about solving them? I can't really uh, name anybody at the moment. I certainly have some bloggers and things that I like. Um, 
but uh, I've been sort of I've been so heads down honestly on the tech right now that I haven't paying as much on the policy end of things. Um, but if, yeah, if you want an introduction, I know people can introduce you to who, who follow that space very closely. Yeah, no, it's just you know it's, it's always interesting. Very often there are people who do important and impactful work, but unless they have a huge platform, most people just don't know who they are. Um, but no, that's that's fair enough. And over the last um, you know few years of getting sure that now you've had a lot of experience working with different parts of the government. So being on the other side of it, what would be your advice to entrepreneurs who maybe look to work with the government as you know as vendors or any other types of commercial partnerships? Um, what would be some of your advice on um, how to make it easier? Yeah. Uh, so dear uh, technology providers, you have got to up your security game. Like seriously, people are so underinvesting in security right now. The threats have increased so much. You've seen, if you follow this stuff, ransomware stuff happening every day. Um, like, and I know some of this is that problem too, that many hospitals and things underinvest in that technology infrastructure. They don't consider it sort of, you know, a C-suite level responsibility of the hospital to deal with the te technology. Um, and many of them are paying the price now, just that they've got poorly conceived and poorly managed security enterprises. Um, and uh, and in general, and you've seen the recent breach at 23andMe that happened, um, right, just undermines consumer confidence in all of this um, in a way that's really damaging. And so I, I would encourage everybody to really have dedicated staff, like have a senior security person sitting at the table when you're making important decisions. And don't find somebody who's a box checker, right? Like you're really looking for somebody, I, and, and hopefully everyone will recognize this too, like if you're doing something as an entrepreneur, is you need enablers. Like you need someone who's, I'm, I'm here to help us do what we need to do with security in mind. Um, and uh, and I'm not here to tell you, you can't do that, right? I'm here to find like, what's the way that we can find this? What's the yes and um, for doing this? But please invest more in security. Yep, fair enough. And um, as you're looking at what is happening in the world of technology today, what are some of the things that maybe you're worried about? And then what are the things that make you optimistic? Hmm. Uh, so, I mean, every like everyone else, right? I'm fascinated by what you can do with the Chat GPT, um, and uh, it is. I, I find sometimes like I start playing with some idea because you take, for example, like we have data in some format needs to get into another format, and so you're like, oh, we could let's here Chat GPT will do this for us, and and it does. Then you have to ask yourself, like, but why is it in that other format in the first place, right? And then you start going down there, like, well, maybe we can reinvent this part, reinvent this part. Somebody you have to go lay down, right? You're like the whole the whole thing starts to unravel, the whole sweater of what we have done um, in a way that I think in the long run is going to be really positive. But for a little while, it's just going to be very overwhelming to think like I can reimagine anything that we're doing. Um, and then, so where do I even start? Like, what's the first thing that we go and change or fix to make all of this better? Um, I do think, and you look at electronic health records, right, are a really important part of medical research for us, because that's where we practically learn about what symptoms are people presenting with, like what tests were done and what measurements were made and what did that reveal and how did the person progress over time? And you're getting all that through the health records. But health records were built for billing purposes, right? They weren't really built for capturing all of this from understanding the actual experienced health. And now we get to reinvent that. You've also got a market that is slowly turning into like less and less players until it's almost dominated by just one player in a way that like could be negative or could be positive, depending on which way they sort of lean on the whole thing, how much they protect the business they already have, or how much they use that as an opportunity to sort of take us to the next level in terms of capturing that. But I think there is this 
moment where we're coming to where you may be able to just completely reimagine the health enterprise. Like, how do we maintain health for people? And you see people pecking at the edges of that. Because the idea of like, well, I need a doctor and the doctor went through residency and then they did this and then that that's my guide for this whole experience doesn't necessarily make sense anymore. You may want more of a navigator model. Like I have somebody who's generally smart, more, much more of a generalist working computer aided to help individuals work through like what's going on with me and, and how can we figure out what's wrong and how can we fix that? Um, and that maybe we can rebuild that model, but you've built up, there's so many vested interests in this space and there's so many people guarding their businesses around the insurance companies and things that sometimes it's hard to picture how you make that change when everyone's trying to pr protect the business they've already built. And it may be an end run, right? It may be just, we went outside, went around all those systems and that's ultimately how we redid the whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I love this topic of new sort of jobs of the future. Um, you know, we recently hosted our CEO gathering and uh, and a number of companies were talking about these new jobs that have been created now um, based on, you know, the types of tools they're using, including things like chief prompt engineer. And then somebody has a company historian, you know, whose job is sort of connecting different parts of the organization in an effective way. Um, and so I love this idea that there could be this person who sort of helps you navigate some of these systems. Are there any other types of jobs and functions that you feel will be created in the future um, based on the tools that we have to Day. Yeah. I, well, and I, another example I want to give is my older son is in college studying architecture. Um, and, you know, I feel so many things he's doing, I'm looking at him, you know, there's no way, right, in five years that that's going to be done the same way. And partly I've encouraged him to think of it as what you should be doing is just spending your time really getting a deep understanding of our relationship to our built environment. And then you've got all these developing tools that will allow you to take that understanding and have a, a vision that you can then go execute on um, against that idea. But that the, the, the deeper thing that doesn't necessarily change is just that we're human beings. We're basically the same as we were 150,000 years ago, right? And some of those things aren't going to change or not going to change very quickly. Um, and think about then how you use all this new tech to apply it. I think it would, and I have, a, it's, not, you know, it's on the shelf from behind me at the moment. Um, this book, uh, which is a Faden book about houses, and it's just a list. It's just pictures of like each one's a page with like some house on it that was really interesting at the time and affected a bunch of architects. And if you go through this book, you'll come out of it going like, I couldn't possibly come up with a new idea for a house, right? Like it's all been done at this point. There's no way I could find something new, except technology is always the thing that changed. I mean, you have you know, mid-century modern houses in part being, you know, built out of um, just steel construction that you have or or out of like, you know, uh, pressed wood, like that, that some new technology came along. And then I was talking to my son about this when we were doing a neighborhood tour nearby and we found this 3D printed um, uh, furniture um, in the house. And we're like, yeah, look, like here it is, right? Like here's the way the technology creates the opportunity to create a it's still a chair. Like you fundamentally have to fit the contortions of a human, or the shape of a human body, but you can do it in really interesting in new ways if you have some new technology. And so I feel like that's, you know, the sort of thing of the future is the tools are getting so good at helping you do the synthesis, like taking a lot of information from a lot of different places and being able to creatively sequence that in new ways. Um, and that if you can learn how to use those tools, 
you don't need to do the act of like, what happens if I stick these two things together? Like it can kind of do that for you, but you need to be the one that has the understanding of like, how do I define the goals here? How do I define what success looks like? Um, how do I turn this into something that has an outcome? Like that's our role is to just be the thing that has the drive and then the objective function to understand when you've succeeded or failed and learning how to do that well is going to be what's going to be really important. Me? Well, it seems like there will be jobs for MBAs. Um, but Okay, so let's move to the next topic. You are a um, founder and the CEO of what some might call the most exclusive book club in Silicon Valley. Um, okay, that's the rumor I started. But um, anyways, you've been running this book club for a number of years. Um, talk to us about book clubs. What makes one successful? What have been some of the things that you know, have enhanced your life about having that group? And what was the best book or the most thought-provoking book that you've uh, had? Because I think you've had over 100 now, right? That's right. Um, um, yeah. yeah. My, and so I learned about myself when I was in my 20s and that first act one, right? And you're figuring out how you work, um, is that to finish something, like I need three things. I need a deadline. Um, I need a social obligation. Um, and, uh, in some ways, ideally also, then I also have some sort of financial obligation. And like, really, if I have all three of those things, like I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Um, and I'll get it done. Um, and I did some exercises then early on where I'd wanted to learn a little more about photography. And so I put together a little photography club where we would get together once a month and we would present our best photos and we would, we have a pot. Everyone would ante in like $10 and, we, and by vote, whoever had the best photo would get the, the cash prize. Um, later I dispensed with the, with the cash prize part of it, but then uh, read the book um, at home in the universe by Stuart Kaufman um, with, and uh, had a friend who'd also read it and we had a conversation about it and decided we really needed to read it again and thought we would read it together. Um, and uh, we did so and then invited some other people to join us. And then it, it grew from there. The idea being of like choosing things, books particularly that maybe would be hard to do alone or, you know, uh, or, or not rewarding enough to actually get all your way through sort of challenging science books uh, and have other people that you get to show up and and drink and eat and talk about those books. Um, and uh, it's been phenomenal in part, I think, because we've also built up so much shared knowledge um, with these people. And I think, and I'm so impressed, right, that you've been able to, to come in and, and join a lot of people who sort of have come in in later years to the book club have felt like it's just hard to catch up, right? That there's so many references and so much shared knowledge about all the things that we've read. Um, but it you build up an incredible um, toolbox for understanding problems as you make your way through so many different kinds of science as well, right? That we we read economics and physics and chemistry, and uh, and you find that many of the best ideas from those disciplines have applications in the other disciplines as well. Yeah. Well, I love being the least smart person in the room, and I'm pretty smart, so that doesn't happen often. But um, but that's what has helped me through this experience, but definitely very life-enhancing for me. And um, so to just finish our conversation, you know, let's um, let's talk about one more topic. What is something that you know a lot about outside of some of your professional interests? Um, outside of my professional interest, music. Um, I am a uh, a dedicated, if um, unskilled musician, um, and uh, something that uh, recently was just looking at. I think this might actually be in the current book club book, Range by David Epstein, which is which is great, honestly. Um, and uh, he talks about 
learning mathematics. Um, actually, I think it's not in this book, but it, like, like there's ways that you learn how to solve problems procedurally. And then he's like, well, I have this procedure I can apply that I can use to solve the problem. And then but if that procedure doesn't work, like you're, you're, you're sort of lost. Um, and that there's really different kinds of education. And uh, one of my frustrations, in fact, with a lot of people who learn computer science now is that they tend to learn it in this way that's about like, oh, there's these patterns and there's a toolbox. And just if you see this pattern, you apply this tool, but they don't. And so they can apply tools. But they don't know how to actually build a tool from scratch. They don't understand the underlying part of it. And I think that for me, as I'm learning about anything, I'm always trying to look how to get past just the procedural stuff, but get down to a real understanding, a real total grok of the underlying structures that are in the thing that I'm studying. Um, and so it's been fun with music that I, over time, because I've written some songs and I learned how to write it procedurally, right? Like I said, oh, you just apply this uh, chord structure, and then here's how to use the rhyming dictionary to come and fill these things. And and I hadn't written anything when I was a little frustrated and I decided I needed to get to the point where I wasn't using any of that, right? And I'm just purely running on instinct. And, and I sat there and I wrote a song and like nothing rhymed and the chord structure didn't make any sense or whatever. And then I tightened up a little and I'm really happy with what I got out of it. You know, sort of it makes me think about um, one of the jazz greats who made that point of like, you know, practice skills, learn everything, know everything. And we get on stage, forget all of that, right? Leave all of that out and just play and exist in that moment. Um, and so I, I find it's fun in any discipline to go and spend enough time with a content space to see if you can get there, to see if you can get past the procedural learning of I'm just repeating what other people told me about this thing to inventing my own ideas in the space. Well, I struggled for four years in a musical school, after which we definitively proven that I have no musical talent. So <laughs> I will have to find another hobby. But this does inspire me to think of something similar. Um, but look, Chris, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you for joining. Thank you. Olivia. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.